the wonderful everyday. This is the RTE News at One with Brian Dobson. Good afternoon. The headlines this Tuesday lunchtime. The U.S. has proposed a draft resolution at the U.N. Security Council calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza and warned Israel against invading the overcrowded city of Rafah. The Taoiseach has announced almost €1 billion for cross-border projects, including an upgrade to the A5 road and the redevelopment of Casement Park. And the GAA, the Camogie Association and the LGFA have set 2027 as the proposed date for full integration between the three organisations. The news in detail now with Brian Jennings. The chief of the Palestinian militant group Hamas has arrived in Cairo for talks with Egyptian officials on the situation in Gaza. After mediators said prospects for a new truce with Israel had dimmed. It comes as the U.S., has proposed a draft resolution at the UN Security Council calling for a temporary ceasefire in the besieged enclave. Fiona Mitchell of our foreign desk. Having previously avoided using the word ceasefire during UN votes relating to the war in Gaza, the United States has shifted its position by including the phrase in a draft resolution at the UN Security Council. Talks on the draft, which also warns Israel against invading the hugely crowded city of Rafah, are due to begin at the council this week. More than a million displaced Palestinians are currently living in Rafah, having fled there to avoid Israeli airstrikes and ground offensives elsewhere. The UN has previously warned of a possible slaughter in the city if a ground assault goes ahead. Earlier, Palestinian militant group Hamas said its leader, Ismail Haniyeh, had arrived in Egypt for talks with Egyptian officials on the situation in Gaza. Previous attempts to reach a peace accord between Israel and Hamas have failed to yield a lasting truce, with Israel warning that all Israelis kidnapped on October 7th must be returned by early next month or an assault on Rafah will begin. The government has announced €800 million Euro for funding projects benefiting Northern Ireland, including €600 million Euro towards the proposed upgrade of the A5 road. The package also includes €50 million Euro for the redevelopment of Casement Park GAA Stadium in West Belfast. Our Northern correspondent, Conor McCauley. The confirmation of Irish government funding has given fresh hope to big infrastructure projects in Northern Ireland that had been in serious doubt. The A5 is regarded as one of the most dangerous roads in Ireland, linking Donegal to Dublin through counties Derry and Tyrone. The £500 sterling announced today is just over a quarter of the current projected bill cost of £1.6 billion. This money won't see the entire scheme built, but it may help start its construction in stages. Work could start later this year. The other high-profile project getting a boost today is the redevelopment of the GAA's Casement Park in Belfast. £76 million had been set aside to build it a decade ago. After a lengthy planning wrangle, it's now going to cost at least twice that and possibly more. The injection of €50 million from Dublin will now see the focus shift to what the British government will do to help. Major works must start by May and the project be completed by 2027 if Casement is to be a host venue for the Euros in 2028 as planned. 
the GAA, the Camogie Association and the LGFA have set 2027 as the proposed date for full integration between the three organisations. Following a detailed consultation process involving over 30,000 respondents, the Camogie Association and the LGFA will be subsumed into the new larger association with no loss of jobs. A steering group for integration, chaired by former President of Ireland, Mary McAleese, has been charged with devising proposals which will be put to the membership of the three organisations. Former President McAleese described the move as the most historic development in the history of Gaelic games. No other country in the world has achieved an amateur sport. What was started by that small group of men led by Michael Cusick 140 years ago. And I thought to myself, if he was here with us today, in no way would he start an organisation that was solely for men. Of course he wouldn't. So I would say his spirit and his legacy infuses what we are trying to do today. The Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has said that the government is looking for the maximum transparency that is legally possible from RTE in relation to exit packages at the station. Speaking this afternoon, Mr Bradcar said he understands that RT Director-General Kevin Backhurst is getting legal advice regarding the publication of details on exit packages. Mr Backhurst said yesterday that he expected to have that advice in the next couple of days, adding that RTE has to respect the law. It comes amid mounting political pressure on RTE to make public the details of payments to top executives who have left the organisation. Now the weather. RTE Radio 1 weather with Grant. For effective, efficient and balanced warmth throughout your home, choose Grant Uflex Underfloor Heating. Visit grant.ie. This afternoon, rain over East Ulster, Leinster and Munster will continue to move southeastwards. It will clear slowly during the afternoon, with sunshine and a few showers following from the northwest. Highest temperatures, 9 to 12 degrees. There's a warning that westerly winds will reach gale force 8 this afternoon on coastal waters from Bloody Foreland to Mallonhead to Fairhead. Brian. Thank you, Brian. Still to come this lunchtime, Ireland is not immune to hatred. The chair of the Muslim Council, Dr. Umar al-Qadri, speaks about the assault on him last week and says Muslim clerics will have to reassess their security. Murdered in Spain, the Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine and paid with his life. A momentous step towards unity, equality and inclusivity. The head of the Camogie Association on that plan to unify the Gaelic Games organisations. And almost a thousand international protection applicants without state accommodation. We'll hear from the Refugee Council. At Electric Ireland, we're here to make your world brighter. In addition to our recent price reductions for all customers, our new customers will be welcomed with a discount of 24% off electricity plans. So switch today at electricireland.ie. Electric Ireland, making your bill smaller and your world brighter. EAB 1,394 euro electricity based on discounted unit rates, PSO, levy and VAT. Decrease in EAB from 1st of March 2024. Subject to change. Terms and conditions apply. See electricireland.ie. At Vodafone, we do truly unlimited 5G data, so now you can really deep dive into new hobbies. Take those online guitar lessons. And even live stream your songs. Uh, make sure to subscribe, please. Uh, perhaps more online lessons first. I think this might need to be tuned. 
You do you. While we do unlimited 5G data on pay-as-you-go. Sign up and top up 20 euro every 28 days. Vodafone. Together we can. Subject to coverage and eligible device. For full terms, see vodafone.ie forward slash terms. Hello again, you're listening to the news at one. Muslim clerics here and faith leaders will need to review safety precautions at places of worship and increase their personal security, according to the chairperson of the Irish Muslim Council, Dr. Umar Al-Khadri, following an assault on him in Dublin last week. Speaking to this programme following the attack in Tala on Thursday, Dr. Al-Khadri, who's imam of the Blanchestown Mosque, said it's clear to him that changes are being seen in this country and that Ireland is not immune to hatred. He said Muslim leaders have told him they will no longer travel alone after the assault on him. When I spoke to Dr. Al-Khadri earlier, I began by asking him how he's been recovering from his injuries. I'm fine. I'm doing very well and thank God the injuries were not severe. They were not life-changing. I have had time for recovery. I'm doing much better compared to Friday. So the incident happened at 8.45 approximately and uh, people came to my aid that saw me uh, getting attacked. I obviously do not remember anything because I just was, I was knocked down. I felt unconscious. The next thing I remember is that I'm in my uh, car and I'm wondering what I'm doing here. I'm wondering, looking around, I'm seeing people talking to me. I'm asking them, where am I? What date is it? Mm -hmm. So I was completely uh, shocked. I was completely confused. The guards happened to be patrolling, which we are really, really thankful and, and fortunate about. And they drove by, I'm told. And then they came back and then they realized ambulances there, a lot of people are there. So they came out and then they, they, they did the interview. And then I was taken to the hospital. I had my CT scan and, and thank God uh, there was no brain injury. There was no broken jaw, just muscle damage, chipped teeth and broken teeth. That's it. Mm. And you had been called to this address in Tala to carry out a wedding ceremony. Is that right? So, I mean, th- th- this was something that a regular, a regular duty you were, you were. You expected to carry out? Yeah, well, it was basically, it was a Muslim uh, nikah, which is a blessing. It is not a civil marriage. It's not a legal marriage. So in the afternoon, I, I received a phone call from somebody who was speaking in a very, you know, thick Irish accent mm-hmm. who wanted an imam, not necessarily me. So he didn't ask anyone for my name. He just said, can we have an imam to come to the to the house? So I asked him, well, where are you from? And he told me he's half Irish, half Pakistani. I said, okay, that makes mm-hmm. sense. He's, he's got an Irish accent. He's born here. I asked him, who are you getting married to? He said, the girl is Algerian. And I said, why don't you come down to the Islamic Center? And he said, well, we just want to do it at home because the family is here. And then I traveled in the evening to the address in Tala. When I arrived at the address, there was only one car. So I was surprised because normally... You know, you would expect a few cars mm-hmm. there, a few guests there. Mm-hmm. So I called the number of and I was told, uh, refer, reverse the car and come down uh, on the beginning of the road. We're standing outside the house. So I thought Google Maps has probably brought me to a wrong location. So I reversed the car, turned back and drove towards the beginning of the road. And on the side of the road, I saw then two people. I saw one person waving his hand and I parked my car next to him. I went out of my car. And to greet him, I greeted the person, I greeted the other person, and I was kind of uh, surprised because they looked 
very you know uh, white Irish mm-hmm. and the, the dresses they they were wearing I was a bit kind of surprised mm-hmm. but then I thought it's not really always strange because sometimes especially with youngsters if they're born and bred here they're gonna wear the same clothes like everybody else mm-hmm. you know and so I then turned towards my car the passenger door so as soon as I turned towards the car that's the only thing I remember <laughs> so after that I don't remember anything so they had probably struck me from behind mm-hmm. from this from the left my left side of my head and I felt unconscious I was knocked down so I don't remember anything of that but what I do remember is then being in my car and looking around and seeing people talking mm-hmm. and by the time it made sense to me that I was attacked I called uh, I sorry I texted somebody in the Islamic Center the group and it was 9.30. So I then called my wife. I didn't tell her what happened. I just asked her. I, I noticed my, my wallet was not with me. So I said to my wife, will you please call the banks and just cancel the cards? I think, uh, you know, I've been attacked. Something has happened, but don't worry. Uh, the guards obviously were there. We went to the hospital. Mm-hmm. It turns out the wallet that I thought that I had with me, I didn't, I didn't bring it with me. So that wallet was actually at home somewhere and I found it only two days ago. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a robbery yeah. then? No, it wasn't. But initially when this was all happening, the wallet wasn't there. So I said, I can't find my wallet. So the, the investigation was robbery and assault. But right now, the, the wallet is, didn't leave the house, so it wasn't taken. So it is actually an assault investigation now. And Dr. Al-Khadri, what's been, what's been the impact of this on your own family, but on the Muslim community more widely? You know, after the attack, I have had so many people, of course, worried in mosques. People are praying um, and they're all, you know, trying to contact me, reach me, trying to find out. And they're all worried about the fact that this is an attack, not just on an ordinary person, Muslim. You know, it's an attack on one of the uh, leaders of the Muslim community, of the faith leaders. And they see this as something that they should, they are very worried. And I, I, I have told them that, listen... Let's wait for the Garda investigation. You know, we we need to find out who they are, the culprits, and we need to find out what the motives are. Because if this is an attack just on me personally, then it's a different thing. But if this is an attack on me because I'm a Muslim, because I am a faith leader, mm. I'm a prominent Irish, you know, Muslim leader... That changes everything. That that changes everything for the whole community. So I would then like to sit down with the government and look at what needs to be done to prevent this from happening. The, the last number of months, I mean, I have been here 21 years and I've spoken against extremism. I've spoken against Islamist militants, against terrorism, but, but I have never been attacked, you see. Mm-hmm. So right now, I have spoken the last number of months against racism. I have spoken against this prevalence of anti-Muslim sentiments, anti-migrant sentiments in the country. And now suddenly I am attacked. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, I don't want to say anything before the guards come out with, mm-hmm. the, with, with, their, with their report. But if it turns out, and it will be more likely, I mean, I think there is no other reason. I mean, the people that attacked me, they were, you know, I mean, they looked Irish and, but they went through a whole procedure. They didn't just randomly, they, they, they called, they asked for an imam. They asked, they actually filled in the application form for the document, for the merit cert. So they went through all this 
to to attack me and i think i'm so thankful to the irish lady and to glenda uh, and and the two men who were there um th- that helped me because if they were not there this could have been very differently this the result would have been differently i and may not have been able to probably to speak to you now and what more widely in the in the wider community has been the reaction to this have you have you got messages from from non-muslim people oh i i i have my emails the islamic center's emails my whatsapp and the uh, twitter is completely filled with messages positive messages from people solidarity from people and i'm so thankful to them and i i don't define this, you know, I mean, when I look at what happened last Thursday night, I think out of it, something so positive has come out because it has shown me that I was right. The vast majority of Irish people do not, are not, you know, racist. Mm. They are not anti-Muslim or anti-migrant. They are, they are people that are amazing, friendly, warm, compassionate. They define what it is to be Irish. And I am so thankful to them, you know, Gorami Lamahagov to them for their lovely messages of support. And I, I, I don't have words, you know, I'm so happy to be in this beautiful country where I feel I am not alone. And I, I would say the same to the community that we are not alone. Do you think, Dr. Al-Khadri, you might have to, to review how you respond to the, the sort of request you got last Thursday night? You might have to look again at your own security? Oh, yeah, we basically, this is not just, you know, me. Uh, all the faith leaders, all the imams and in Ireland, they will have to review that in terms of, you know, they have, have to have precautions have to be taken in place uh, in terms of them going to any 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 religious or spiritual meeting. They also have to take precautions not to travel alone for example to ensure that they know the people they are tra- they are meeting uh, and i think also the the mosques and the places of worship their security needs to be also increased because i mean look f- for me i have always said this in the past ireland is amazing it's unique but that does not mean that in ireland we are immune to hate it's it doesn't mean we're immune it just means that hatred hasn't really infiltrated us yet but now we can see a little bit the changes and in new zealand a country a couple of years ago there was this horrific incident where although the whole vast majority of the society is wonderful it's amazing but it just took one criminal to attack two mosques on a Friday and, uh, you know, kill kill countless of innocent people, worshippers. And I, and I think that the message is that we just need to make sure that we have all these security measures in place to prevent anything wrong, anything negative, you know, to happen. And and that's, that's something that my community is uh, focused on. It's now, I mean, I've had messages from different mosque leaders, imams, they try to visit me, and they're all saying that we need to have now security measures in place. Uh, so imams are not going to travel alone. They're not going to go to a place that they do not know. If anybody would like to have a, a religious blessing, they would be asked to come and travel to the mosque rather than the imam traveling. So mm-hmm. the things will change absolutely. And that was the chairman of the Irish Muslim Council, Dr. Umar al-Khadri.
A Russian pilot who defected to Ukraine with his helicopter last year has been found dead in an underground garage in Spain. Maxim Kuzimov's body was found with gunshot wounds in Alicante last week where he'd been living under a different name. Meanwhile, Polish farmers say they'll step up protests at the border with Ukraine, blocking almost all traffic in a row over cheap grain and other agricultural imports. Well, Kiev says it's informed the European Commission of the actions of the farmers and expects a robust response. Let's talk to the BBC's Ukraine correspondent James Waterhouse is on the line. James, thanks very much for taking our, our call this lunchtime. First of all, um, uh, Kuzminov, who was he and uh, why, why was he killed, one assumes, by um, Russian security forces? Good afternoon. Yeah, Maxim Kuzminov is part of a real security coup for Kiev where Kirill Budanov, the country's head of the security forces, his unit, his department oversaw, negotiated this defection by Maxim Kuzminov, a Russian helicopter pilot. And in real dramatic fashion in August last year, he flew his helicopter with its crew across the border into uh, eastern Ukraine, which is controlled by Kiev from occupied territory. It came down as the remaining crew members ran back towards Russian territory. They were shot dead. He was awarded half a million euros for switching sides. And Kiev has said all along that he would have been protected inside Ukraine. He asked to go to Spain to reunite with an ex-partner. And now we have these reports that he has been shot several times, as you say, found dead Uh, in a a garage on the east coast of Spain. The authorities there are not saying much, but the Ukrainian intelligence services are saying he was indeed taken out by Russian Russian agents Mm. of some form. The Kremlin said he was a a, a corpse anyway because of the way he betrayed his country. We know Moscow goes after defectors in the past. I think of the Salisbury poisonings in, in England when they went after Sergei Skripal and failed, but took the life of a of another woman who lived locally. So, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a dramatic end, and, and mm-hmm. some would argue not surprising. And presumably se- designed to send a message to other would-be defectors. We, we will get you. Exactly. If Moscow, the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin is preoccupied by anything, it is internal consumption. It is what the Russian people make of his decisions and actions. And if it is suddenly portrayed as being acceptable for... Russian service personnel to switch sides, to, to, to leak secrets, to fight for the other side. They want, they will be incredibly keen to send a message. And I, I, mm-hmm. whilst the Spanish authorities are fair, remaining fairly hush about this, you can expect the Kremlin to talk up the demise of of Mr. Kosmonov, no doubt about that. Right. I want to come to these farmer protests on the Ukrainian border, but first of all, more, more broadly, um, the reports suggest that Ukraine is very much on, on the back foot on the battlefield at the moment. That, that's an understatement. I think, you know, we, we've talked before and we talk about junctures in this war, but this is an incredibly dangerous moment for Ukraine and its allies. We saw the fall of the small town of Avdivka, a few days ago, uh, and it poses a lot of difficult questions. This was a city that Ukraine had held on to firmly for the past decade, but Russia is just making its size count. It launched wave after wave of attack, and the Ukrainians, we keep hearing the same phrase. I'm in Klyvivy in southern Ukraine at the moment. They say seven to one. They are outmatched by the Russians by seven to one in terms of ammunition, artillery shells, but also numerically. Like, the Ukrainians really are up against it. And we are seeing waning Western support, notably from the US, directly hamper their abilities to fight 
on the front line. And you wonder, because at the moment, the Russians are pushing in around five areas of the front line. They are not stopping at Avdivka. You wonder whether it will either reinforce that scepticism in the West that Ukraine can't win this war, or it might jolt the West into some kind of unity, the type that we saw in the outbreak of this invasion, to try and ensure that Vladimir Putin can't go further. Because you can be sure he wants the whole of Ukraine, and what Ukraine argues is that he won't stop here, he will make a push on NATO members in the longer term. And in relation to support from Ukraine by Western and EU countries, um, th- that, that support has its limits as we're seeing with these protests in Poland. Oh, it's a, a hugely frustrating sight for Kiev and, U- and Ukrainians. I mean, this is something where you have, it's a bit of a paradox. You have Poland, this, this loyal ally of Ukraine with this war. It, it is a country that knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of Russian aggression. It's a staunch military ally. It's one of the biggest military spenders in NATO. And yet it has this huge agricultural row that keeps building. Polish farmers are not happy with Ukrainian grain where um, export tariffs were lifted during the outbreak of the invasion. They say that's driven down grain prices in Poland and leaving farmers short of making any kind of profit. We, We thought it had been sorted out by the European Commission, but it's reared its head once more. They are blockading um, parts of the border, aside from military imports, and what Ukrainians are doing, and they're launching their own counter-protests, blocking crossings as well. So it's becoming an increasingly messy situation to the, the real annoyance of Kiev, but of course to those farmers as well across the border. All right. James, we leave it there. Thanks so much for that. James Waterhouse, BBC Ukraine correspondent. Here, the government has announced 800 million euro in funding for cross-border projects, including 600 million euro towards the proposed upgrade of the A5 road as part of the Shared Island Initiative. The package also includes 50 million euro for the long-awaited redevelopment of Casement Park GAA Stadium in Belfast. The announcement was made at a news conference a short time ago. Our political correspondent, Michal Lahan, was there. So, Michal, what can you tell us about, about these projects? Casement Park, uh, one of a number of uh, projects identified for Irish government funding in this package. Yeah, a substantial funding for Casement Park. And of course, that's all with a view to having the GA grounds ready for the Euro 2028 UEFA Championships. Uh, that's just four years off now and a priority to, to try and ensure that the ground is ready. The Taoiseach saying something interesting too, that it is the hope of government that this ground, this GA ground can be used for a wide variety of sports. Uh, so it won't just be GA fixtures, it seems, but equally clarifying that there's nothing binding legally and the money that's available now, forestry development to ensure that. The Thonish is just saying that's not necessary because if you look at things uh, like the recent rugby game that was held, he said in Super Value Parky Cueve, uh, no such uh, requirements are necessary anymore. But it's interesting nonetheless. There's other money too. Uh, things like the rail link between Dublin and Belfast. There's a hope to double the services, the number of services, that there would be an early connection between Dublin and Belfast. There's about 12.5 million for that. And that could be in place and up and running as early as next year. The big chunk of the money, though, going on that road uh, that runs through the counties of Derry and Tyrone and links the northwest and Dublin, the A5, 600 million available there, and it's hoped that that money can be drawn down fairly soon as, as the work is, is about to begin. Other funding includes 10 million to do up the Battle of the Boyne site, and there's about 30 million available to tackle education disadvantage north and south, as well as
as funding commitments for that really long-standing commitment, which is uh, the narrow water bridge that would link the Cooley Peninsula in County Loud to the Mourne Mountains and down. And that's separately, Michal, at that news conference, questions being asked in relation to the ongoing controversy at RTE. There were many questions asked about it. I suppose the first centres on the fact that there is updated legal advice being sought by RTE now to see what can be made available further detail about those exit packages of senior executives from RTE. The Taoiseach saying no one expects anyone to break the law here. I suppose that's in the context of those confidentiality agreements that are legally binding. But the government, it seems, does want to see something that goes right to the limits of those legal constraints. So I suppose one can interpret from that a view within government that further detail is required but not so much that it would stray over the line and break the law. The Taoiseach also asked generally about what confidence he has in RTE as it deals with this latest crisis and here's what he had to say. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I think uh, Shuni Rahala's chair is a new chair and is um, doing a very good job in difficult circumstances. Um, we have a new DG in Kevin Backhurst, who I think um, is doing his very best to uh, stabilise the organisation. I think it's important that we, we give them uh, our support. They're relatively new in their roles uh, and they deserve a chance to get things right. Taoiseach, ending that report from Michal Lahan. Men's and women's Gaelic games will be brought under one GAA organisation. Proposals published today on the future of the sport are accepted. It's been recommended that the Camogie Association and the Ladies Gaelic Football Association be fully integrated with the men's organisation within three years. Former President Mary McAleese has been chairing a steering group for the last 18 months and today it published a recommendation that by 2027 there would be just one association. Mary McAleese said it was clear that this was what the membership wanted to happen. We know from the membership of the GAA and we know from the public, we know from the government and the sponsors that what people want is one association for Gaelic Games, for all Gaelic Games. Currently, we have three associations and what we have planned for the last, and worked on for the last 18 months is a pathway to bringing these, those three organisations into one. And when it is in one, it will be a formidable organisation, formidable voluntary organisation of amateur sports right across the island of Ireland, right across the world, wherever Gaelic games are played. Everybody will be a member of one association and that one association will have a new energy, if you like, a new, a completely new dynamic as women's sports become fully integrated into the 140-year-old history of the GAA. Former President Mary McAleese. Well, we're joined now by the President of the Camogie Association, Hilda Breslin. A very good afternoon to you, uh, Hilda Breslin, and welcome to the News of One. Thanks, Brian. So is this a recommendation which you support, both in, in terms of the, the merger of these organisations, but also the timescale here within three years? Absolutely. I'm fully supportive of this. Um, and I think it's going to be a wonderful day for the Gaelic Games family and 2027 is going to be very achievable. We will get this done by 2027 um, and we will have a new association which will transform Gaelic Games going forward. Of course, it's not just a, a merger at the, the national level, at the level of Crow Park. It's also right down uh, to the to the club level as well. This will involve one club, one county board. One club, one county, one province, one congress. That is what we are saying. We will be from every level of the association, one family, one group. You're talking about this as something obviously that will uh, result in in a unified organisation, but also one that is more inclusive. How do you think it's going to deliver inclusivity and equality? 
Yeah, and I think that is the key. We're saying this will be based on equity and equality, and that's very important. And that's not just for the genders, but that's across every member should be treated equally. Um, so I think we will deliver this. Women's Sports and the Women's Association, the Camogie is 120 years old this year, and we have a long, long history of women's sport. But we now will be united together behind this equity and equality. Um, and I think that's what will deliver it. We will have this backing of the one family um, which will drive it over the line but it isn't just about women's sport, it is about equity and equality for everybody and we have to be very important about that and recognise that. We have to ensure all our members are treated equally. Talk about the three F's here finance, facilities uh, and fixtures on on all of those issues there have been disagreements and disputes and difficulties in the past, fixtures for for example how might this make a difference uh, to how to to the the fixing of games and particularly to avoid clashes. I think very simply, Brian, we'll all be in the one room and we'll be making the decisions together and that makes it a lot easier. I mean, we have had issues in the past, but they're only very small when you see how we do currently work together. But issues have come up and what now will allow us to have one committee looking at all of these. So that's very, very important that we can do this in a unified way. Finance, another area that obviously is going to be, I suppose, challenging, you'd accept to integrate, particularly as a lot of the revenue comes from the men's games, I think it's fair to say, whether it's television rights or or, uh, gate receipts. Uh, How are you going to manage that allocation of resources? Well, look, uh, facilities are always going to be challenging because all of our games are growing. Sport is growing and the government have put in place a policy of 60% of the population playing sport by 2027. And we are going to be fundamental to that and we are going to drive that. And I think if we are going to be very realistic on this, the benefit for people playing sport is enormous and it goes on for generation and generation. So we are going to have to invest and the government are going to have to invest and we're going to have to do this in a new and a better way but we equally at the moment we all play on the same pitches we use the same facilities so we recognise that currently we are doing it, it may not be perfect but I do genuinely think that if we do this in a new a better way going forward then what we will do is we will transform Irish society beyond what any of us could have hoped for and by a one association for Gaelic Games we will have played our part in doing that. Is it, is it finally a a move that that you would hope will raise the profile of the women's games absolutely I think absolutely look where we are with what we have it have the resources we have we have achieved a huge amount and we have driven the sports on I actually really think if we have all of this backing behind us where we can go we know commercially the growth is in women's sport so to me I think this is a wonderful opportunity for the men's game because now what you're saying to sponsors is we have all of the codes and we have all of the genders look at us we will be so attractive to sponsors going forward and this is I think Mary said it. This is what our sponsors want. This is what our members want. And we are a members-based association. We are volunteer and amateurs. And they have instructed us to drive this forward. And today is what we're doing. And I think with the backing of our members, everything is achievable. Very good. Hilda Breslin, President of the Camogie Association. Thanks so much for talking to us here on the News of One. Back with more after this short break. (laughs) 
Friday, March 22nd, the phenomenal violin virtuoso Maxime Vengerov teams up with the National Symphony Orchestra and conductor David Brophy for the Sibelius Violin Concerto. One of the truly great works for violin. Expect musical fireworks aplenty. Alongside this, masterpieces by Haydn and Beethoven, including Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. That's March 22nd at the National Concert Hall. See nch.ie. At B&Q, get three for two on selected colored emulsion, including paint mixing. So bring color to your home with big brands like Dulux and Valspar for less. Shop in-store or online at DIY.ie. You can do it. Exclusions apply. The value of every third item per single transaction in descending price order deducted. Ends 26th of February. See DIY.ie. RTE Radio 1. Shania Twain. Let's go, girls. Live in Dublin. Shania Twain. That don't impress me much. Performing one incredible show. Malahide Castle on Friday, June 28th. Tickets available now from Ticketmaster.ie. Subject to license. Let's go. Tickets available now. Music updates on RTE Radio 1. Hello again, you're listening to the news at one. Almost a thousand international protection applicants are without state accommodation, according to the latest official figures. Since the 4th of December, the state has been unable to provide accommodation to single men arriving into the country due to a shortage of beds. As of this lunchtime, 970 people are without an offer of a bed. Hundreds are sleeping rough. Nick Henderson is CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. He's on the line. Nick Henderson, thanks for taking our uh, call this lunchtime. Of those international national protection applicants who are arriving here, single men, uh, for whom there is no state accommodation. What is happening to them? Yeah, it's a situation of great concern to us, Brian. Um, Approximately 1,300 men have arrived in the country since the beginning of December, and approximately 157 have uh, received accommodation after what's called a vulnerability triage that would try to identify medical issues in particular and those 157 people have been accommodated and then there's around another 255 people who have subsequently received accommodation Uh, and that leaves a figure as you say of 970 people who are currently without accommodation. Uh, We do outreach to two locations in Dublin City twice a week. We were there at one of those locations this morning meeting people who are homeless and without accommodation uh, and that people are in a desperate and dire situation. Uh, I met one person who had been without accommodation for uh, two months. He'd arrived uh, on the 18th of uh, the the middle of December. Um, Another person that we met had spoken about having their belongings uh, stolen from them and that's been a common theme uh, in from the people that we've met, and we've met around 200 people in total that they've uh, suffered. Um, some people have suffered assault. Some people have had belongings stolen from them on the street. I mean, we so know the it's Department quite a desperate situation. We know the Department of Integration is making efforts to try to find accommodation most recently, earmarking the, the D Hotel in Dundalk, for example, which, if made available, would accommodate some hundreds um, of international protection applicants. Is it, is it initiatives on that sort of scale that are necessary? 
It certainly is. And I don't know if the D hotel and it would be used for single men as opposed to families. I'm not, I haven't, I, I'm not aware of whether it would be, have, have a designated use. Uh, one thing that we did and try to do uh, repeatedly is draw to the attention of government that there is capacity, we believe, in the system, both within the IPAS system, we believe there are spare beds, but particularly within the Ukrainian accommodation system, there are at least, or were in, at the end of January, at least 2,000 vacancies within the Ukrainian accommodation system that we believe could be used. I think the government would say, well, providers have a designated use for Ukrainians only, but we would be concerned by that. And we think there is an obligation on government to work with providers and try to uh, argue with providers to provide accommodation for all people. And then also we believe there's accommodation elsewhere within government's reach, other government departments, and we drew this to their attention in correspondence at the beginning of December, that other government departments, the HSE, the OPW, may have temporary accommodation or buildings that could uh, be used to accommodate people on a temporary basis. We know the government has taken a number of other initiatives in this. There's changes to the uh, the basis uh, on uh, which um, Ukrainian refugees uh, are, mm. are coming here, for example. That's in the pipeline. Also, discussion around uh, those countries which are, are designated as, as not safe or, or, or safe countries and so on. Are, are those kind of moves going to reduce the flow, would you think? It's very hard to tell. Uh, just looking at the figures at the moment, they don't seem to have had an effect, certainly not on the international protection side. There has been a dip in the number of people arriving from Ukraine. Uh, one thing that we would always say is that People move because of circumstances in their country. Uh, people move because they are fear or have experienced persecution. Um, and people in our experience, and there's academic studies that have supported this, people are not uh, aware or mainly only, maybe only partially aware of the offering in a certain country. Uh, and uh, when we meet people, uh, and as I say, we've met over 200 people, uh, people are, are, are surprised uh, about the situation that they find themselves in. People don't expect the, the, the world. They don't expect uh, a particularly um, advanced or accommodation. People are looking for shelter. Uh, so it is of great, it is of surprise to people when they arrive and they're, they're told that there isn't accommodation. So we really don't think that the, that the efforts made in uh, by the state uh will necessarily have effect on the number of people coming here. All right. Nick Anderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, thank you for that. I should say the D-Hotel is in uh, is in Drogheda uh, and not... Uh, uh, is, in, is in Drogheda, not Dundalk, as I said a little bit earlier. Sport on RTE Radio 1. Good afternoon to John Kenny. John. As you've probably been hearing, a proposed target of 2027 has been announced for full integration of the Camogie Association, the GA, and the Ladies GFA. Over the past 18 months, members and officials across three associations have been holding consultations under the steering group for integration, chaired by the former Irish president, Mary McAleese. This means one club and one county board will be working to provide games, finance, and facilities for its members. The committee said it was clear that this was what the membership wanted to happen over the 
the next few years, staff in both the Camogie Association and the LGFA will be assumed into the new, bigger association. The government has pledged €50 million Euro to aid the redevelopment of Caseman Park in Belfast. The Cabinet met in Dublin today and signed off on several cross-border projects, including Caseman Park, which is one of the host venues for Euro 2028. The redevelopment project is owned and managed by the Ulster Council of the GAA in cooperation with Northern Ireland authorities who are working to bring together an overall funding package to deliver the redevelopment stadium in time for the Euros. Kenan Doris has emerged as an injury doubt for Ireland's Six Nations rugby meeting with Wales at the weekend. The back row set a training at the team's base in Abbottstown this morning along with Ian Henderson who picked up a foot injury while playing for Ulster at the weekend. Meanwhile, the Munster forwards Ollie Yeager and Tom Ahern who both started in Friday's win over the Scarlets have been added to the squad.